Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 10th, 2018, and my guest is author and economist Ed Dolan, Senior Fellow at the Niskanen Center. Ed, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me on. Our topic for today is employer-sponsored health insurance, and we're basing the conversation on a recent essay you've written that we'll link to called What's Wrong with Employer-Sponsored Health Insurance? And let's begin with some basic facts. How important a phenomenon is uh, people getting their health insurance through their uh, employer? How unusual is it compared to, say, other countries? It's uh, very important in the United States, uh, very close to half of all people who have health insurance in the United States get it through their employer. And uh, this is a system that, as far as I know, is unique in the world, certainly unique among all other countries. There are no other major countries that I know of that tie health insurance to your job. Which is crazy. Uh, Why do you think – I know there's some different theories about it, but why do you think uh, we have this in America? Well, there's a little bit of controversy about that, but the predominant theory is that this was an accidental outcome of a wartime policy during World War II. During World War II, there were strict price and wage controls to prevent inflation, and that and there was also a labor shortage since uh, all the men were overseas fighting. And so employers who wanted to attract extra workers couldn't raise wages to do it. So they started offering fringe benefits like health care being one of the main ones. Um, <clears throat> at first, it was ambiguous whether or not these uh, fringe value of these fringe benefits would be taxed as income for income tax. But um, after the war, um, there was a decision made that they would not be taxed. It would be exempted from taxation because people didn't want these benefits, uh, the benefit of the income tax exemption taken away from them since they'd already become widespread. So that basically just stayed. Uh, Then also after the war, um, President Truman made a big push to get some kind of national health insurance, but that fell short. And by the time that had happened, uh, employer-sponsored health insurance as a tax-deductible benefit was so well established that nobody's really challenged it since. There have been some people, I would say in the last 10 to 20 years, who have pointed out that it's not a very good way to <laughs> to get people to be insured. Um, and it's ironic, as you point out, uh, Obamacare requires it, or at least makes it um, expensive not to provide it. What's what's wrong with it? Why not? Is, isn't that a good thing? What's wrong with having uh, your employer provide your health insurance? Well, it has um, several defects. One of the ones that gets the most um, attention is what we call the phenomenon of job lock, which is that. Uh, employer-sponsored health insurance isn't portable. If you change your job, 
uh, or lose your job, you lose your health insurance. If you're a highly paid professional, it's pretty certain that your next new job is going to have it. But if you're a working class, and especially if you're a low-paid service worker, uh, you may be stuck if you lose your employer-sponsored health insurance. So uh, there is a... Uh, large academic literature and also a lot of of anecdotal evidence that there are a lot of people who have jobs that they don't like that uh, they would quit if they could do it without losing their insurance. So that's the job lock problem. Isn't is, That is somewhat mitigated by COBRA, which is an acronym for something I don't know what it stands for, but COBRA is a requirement that even when you leave your job, your health insurance is extended for at least a temporary period of time, correct? COBRA was an attempt to mitigate it, but most people regard COBRA as a failure partly because of its short-term nature and partly because it's very expensive. Um, and typically, uh, employers pay about three-quarters of the cost of health insurance, uh, the average cost of employer-sponsored health insurance is about $20,000, of which employers pick up about 14000 That's the annual cost. And uh, if you go on to COBRA, you have to pay the whole cost yourself. So you can imagine a typical working-class person going from a premium or out-of-pocket cost of $6,000 to $20,000 would find that pretty big shock. Well, let's go back to that $20,000 number. <clears throat> and, of course, the payment – when you say the employer pays fourteen and the employee pays six, that's the money that gets sent in. It's not who really pays it in the economic sense of what we would call incidence of who the burden falls on. Presumably, much of it falls on the worker in the form of lower wages. So the six right. understates the real cost to you as a worker. The idea, though, being that the fourteen that the, if you paid it, if you got twenty thousand in wages, you'd have to pay taxes on it. So it's only a twenty thousand uh, dollar salary increase is only worth, say, something between I don't know thirteen and fifteen to the average worker. So better to give that in the form of health insurance, where it's not taxable, and uh, both the employer and the employee prefer that. But that's. Um, uh, we'll talk about why that's a bad thing. It sounds like a good thing, which, like you say, most people are – Okay. Yeah, it's – I mean, it sounds like it's sort of benign at first because <clears throat> you're right that the employee bears – indirectly bears the cost of employer-sponsored health insurance because from the employer's point of view, what they're interested in, if they're going to hire you or not, they're interested in the total cost – to them, to the company of hiring you. And the total cost includes wages and fringe benefits, both. There's no question about that. So in that sense, the employee bears the whole burden. But um, because it's tax deductible, then uh, depending on what your tax rate is, you get um, a better deal by taking part of your insurance in a tax deductible way. But that brings up the second real big problem uh, with employer-sponsored health insurance is that it's quite inequitable. Uh, it's not worth much unless you have uh, – it's worth a lot more if you have a high uh, tax bra – if you're in a high tax bracket. So if you're a uh, highly paid uh, professional 
you get much more bang for your buck there for uh, if you're low paid and are paying only payroll tax, uh, it's not uh, nearly as good a deal. So as a result of that, uh, plus the fact that many low paid workers are not offered that at all, <clears throat> the amount of money you get, uh, the amount of benefit you get is a lot less. Uh, <clears throat> according to some data put out by the um, Social Security Administration and analysis uh, of that uh, for workers in the bottom fifth of the income distribution, they get benefits of around $500 a year from employer-sponsored health insurance, while uh, workers in the top fifth of the health of the uh, uh, income distribution get benefits of about $4,500. So this is definitely a benefit that's very much skewed toward high-skilled, high-paid workers. Of course, the other part of it, which I don't think you talk about in your article, but for me has always been the uh, an equally important problem with this system is that uh, when you're spending other people's money, you spend it less carefully. And uh, so when I'm getting a, uh, a 20000 or a better way to say it, that's problem number one. Problem number two is that when other people pay for what I have, I want more of it. So I want a bigger health plan than I would normally have if I had to pay for it myself. And when we say tax, you say tax deductible, it's really tax exempt, right? So I get I get that uh, in that that twenty thousand dollar plan that I get, say uh, fourteen thousand is quote paid by the employer, six thousand out of pocket to me by me, but. The truth is, is that the whole cost of it, I should be, I'm, I'm spared, say, 5000 of it in taxes at a 25% tax rate. And as a result, I want a bigger plan than I would have if I had to pay for the whole thing myself. So we've subsidized the generosity of health insurance in America over the last, you know, so many years. And, uh, and, and that encourages more generous coverage, which encourages more use of the healthcare system, which encourages higher prices, which encourages people to pay for things they don't necessarily value as much as they cost? Um, yes and no. Uh, this is a problem, but uh, there's two things I'd say about that. Number one is that uh, this problem of third-party payment is not by any means unique to employer-sponsored insurance. That's true of, of any insurance, whatever its source. Uh, but more importantly, uh, that's offset to a considerable degree by the fact that uh, the deductibles required uh, – for employer-sponsored uh, health insurance have been going up uh, very uh, rapidly. Uh, I've noticed and, that. Why uh, is for, that? For, for, exa for example, uh, here I'm just looking at some data here. Between 2013 and 2018, um, <clears throat> the percentage of workers that had a deductible of $1,000 or more uh, went up from 29% to 48%. So – uh, high deductible policies are, are becoming almost the norm in employer-sponsored health insurance. And that does take away this, uh, sometimes they call what you say, the skin in the game argument. If you have skin in the game, that is, if you're spending your own money, uh, you uh, spend less of it. I'd like to come back to that quest skin in the game argument, by the way, because spending less and spending more wisely turn out not to be quite the same. I agree. Um, 
but that would be a bit of a digression at the moment. Maybe we'll come back to that later. The other point I want to mention, well, a couple of things I want to mention. One is uh, we talked about this in an episode with Mark Warshawski. When you have this attractiveness of deductible health care uh, insurance payments, you lower observed compensation, which is crazy, uh, but true, that you know your full compensation is often not what you remember. You, you tend to look at your take-home pay or your your um, uh, your pre-tax income, but you don't always account for the fact, and the data don't always measure your in-kind benefits in the form of either healthcare insurance or subsidies subsidies that you get for that, which um, there changes how you perceive your economic progress and well-being. And as we've devoted more and more resources to healthcare in the United States, that becomes increasingly important. That's one thing I want to mention. The other thing I want to mention is. And this is going to – I just have to say this, Ed, because it drives me nuts. This whole conversation is going to be about insurance. Uh, most of what we care about, though, is health care. Um, there is an issue of insurance. There's riskiness and there's worries about catastrophic costs, which we'll talk about later. But the truth is I really don't care whether people have health insurance. I worry that they have health care. I worry that they are taken care of when they get sick or uh, have uh, trauma. So – uh, our focus on insurance, I think, is a bizarre public policy um, phenomenon. Yeah, you're right about that. What what we're worried about is access to health care, yeah. uh, not whether you receive health care, because, uh, you know, a lot of people have, uh, you know, more than half the population has almost no contact without with the healthcare system from one end of the year to the other because they're healthy. But it's important even for healthy people to have access for peace of mind and, and so on. Um, but yeah, you're right about that. Um, but let me wind back. What was the first part of your comment? I had uh, a – The first uh, part of my comment was about compensation. Our, our ah, perception right. compensation. of compensation yeah. is distorted. You're absolutely right on that. The fact that um, people get a substantial part of their compensation in the form of fringe benefits, of which uh, health insurance is the largest one, does uh, distort uh, – it, it distorts information on um, how pay has changed over time. and. Uh, I was just reading an article in this, as a matter of fact, there's an article in this morning's Washington Post uh, uh, op-ed by Robert Samuelson where he uh, emphasizes that uh, he's talking about this doctrine of wage stagnation, the fact that uh, lower paid workers haven't gotten a raise in 30 years. And he says that he points out that whether or not that's true depends a lot on whether you include uh, fringe benefits, and he uh, includes uh, some links to some interesting um, empirical studies of that. Uh, so that's very much true. Oh, <clears throat> of course, there's also an argument about uh, <clears throat> the cost of health care in general, and you say, okay, you're getting more uh, – that your employer is spending more on health insurance, but is the value of the health insurance to you uh, increasing as rapidly as the cost of the health insurance to your employer? Uh, that's a different question. That's a more controversial question. Yeah, the employer. I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Obviously, the employer has an incentive to try to line those up. <laughs> the employer yeah. doesn't want to give you something you don't value. They'd rather give you the money and let you spend it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, 
even if it's tax deductible or tax exempt, if you don't value it, that's not good compensation. So they're not they don't want to do that. But 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 the fact that there's this um, disconnect, I, I, it's hard to describe it accurately. And I'll just put it this way. I've always assumed that health insurance companies, as you point out, anytime you have a third party payment, these issues of moral hazard and, and care of how you spend your money come into play, whether it's subsidized by federal tax policy or not. So if I have insurance, I have an incentive to use use it because it's paid for by somebody else. The insurance company knows that uh, and they try to make sure that it's money well spent, that the things I ask for the insurance to cover are good for my health and not just indulge self-indulgence, say, or not a, and certainly not a, an example of, say, fraud on the part of my uh, medical provider. But I start. I started to wonder about whether that's a very, that, whether that's a very good system. In particular, uh, say a new treatment. We've been talking about pharmaceutical pricing a little bit on the program recently, and I expect to do it, do some more. You know, a new pharmaceutical, a new drug gets developed that extends life by three months. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's expected length is three months. It's now. Uh, it's a version of a patented drug that is now about to go off patent. So the comparison is between a generic and a patented drug. The patented drug extends life three months more, and it's 50 times more expensive. And right. who sh- who wants that? Well, most people don't want it if they had to pay it. out of their- Well, they wouldn't, almost certainly, if they had to pay for it out of their po- own pocket. They don't want their kids to pay for it either if they have any care or love for their kids. Usually, I think they'd say, I don't want that to pay for that. I would think the insurance company wouldn't want to pay for it, but the legal nexus uh, of you know getting the best care, and then also the question of you know so let's say they approve it as a covered drug, and they raise their premiums. Now, is there going to be the care taken? I mean, it's really a complex system. Like, who's monitoring that to make sure that the that the insurance company is 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 agreeing to things that are really of value? And the answer is the employer to some extent. There's competition among insurance companies, but not so much. So anyway, I worry about all these things as as driving up the price of health care and not getting our, our money's worth. You're absolutely right to worry about those things. Um, and you're certainly right to say it's a very complex problem. Uh, if we want – if I would f- – couple remarks I'd make. First of all, if we want to stick to the problem of employer-sponsored uh, coverage, um, people that study these things more carefully than I do, uh, that is, people who are actually in the industry, um, say that employers have a reputation for not doing these things very well. Yes, of course, they should have an incentive to Uh, monitor their insurance companies and make sure that they're paying only for things of value. But in practice, um, employers themselves don't have the expertise to do that, number one. So they rely on middlemen. Uh, They go to uh, – there's a whole industry – of facilitators that stand between employers and the insurance companies. So unless you're a really, really big employer, as a General uh, General Motors or something like that, um, if you have a couple hundred or a few hundred employees, <clears throat> to provide your insurance, you go to one of these middlemen, 
and you contract with them to manage your health insurance, and then they, in turn, turn around and go out and shop among actual healthcare insurance companies uh, to select a package that they think will be beneficial for you, and they take a fee of maybe 10% of the whole thing. And then the insurance company, in turn, goes out and uh, bargains with the providers. Uh, so right away... Uh, Employer-sponsored coverage includes an extra level of middlemen and an extra separation uh, between the person who's actually spending the money and the person who's making decisions on things you say about whether a new drug uh, actually has a reasonable benefits. Um, you may have seen in the news there was a recent case in which three really big companies, uh, Amazon, J.P. Morgan, and uh, Berkshire Hathaway, joined forces yep. to establish a new healthcare company that would manage benefits for, I don't know, several hundred thousand employees of these three companies. And uh, supposedly the stock prices of traditional insurers fell uh, <laughs> on this news. Um, but, uh, again, there's some skepticism uh, as to whether or not this will really work. Uh, as one commentator said, uh, just because you know an industry is un underperforming and you have a lot of money to solve the problem doesn't mean you have a successful strategy. So, anyhow, yeah, so that is a problem. Um, it's, a, it's a specific problem with employer-sponsored insurance, um, but it's a more general problem also because insurance companies themselves, although we think of them as big, powerful giants, and some of them are very big and powerful, they actually are in an inferior bargaining position relative to healthcare providers. And so uh, even if as an insurance company, you make your best efforts uh, to provide uh, the most cost-effective care, um, it's hard for the insurance companies to do because very often uh, the health, uh, the providers are more concentrated. For example, uh, hospitals are a very important category of providers. And in even a, a middle-sized or large cities, you've really only got one or two hospitals to deal with. And as you probably have read, uh, there's a trend toward uh, consolidation and concentration in hospitals. So it's... Uh, even where there is goodwill, and I'm not saying that, uh, that, that insurance companies always have goodwill, but even when they do have goodwill, uh, they're not in a, necessarily in a very strong bargaining position. Well, I've probably told this story before, but um, you know, I, I, I went in once to a, to a doctor to find out whether I wanted to spend time with the, to, to change doctors to this person. Mm-hmm. And uh, we chatted for five or ten minutes. We'd, I made an appointment. We chatted for five or ten minutes. And then he said, well, let's do some kind of test. I forget what it was. And it was just a sham. He just wanted to be able to bill this 30 minutes to insurance so that he would not lose money from chatting with me. If he had said to me, you know, I, I'd like to uh, check up uh, – if I said to him, I want to find out whether I want to switch doctors to you – he said, well, it'll cost you $100 or $250 for my time to find out. I pr probably would have said, well, maybe I'll need to look at some more recommendations or references. But instead, he, he did a, a bogus test, which I was incredibly uncomfortable. 
because um, I knew he was just using it to scam the – it wasn't literally bogus. He did the test. But that kind of thing – and afterwards, I wonder whether I should say anything about it. I didn't switch to him. But that kind of thing, it must happen, quote, all the time. The ability of an insurance company to monitor the performance of the thousands of doctors that are you know, on the ground is, is minimal. And as a result, there are all kinds of things that become, I think, culturally acceptable to bill for and others that aren't because that would be ridiculous or embarrassing or unethical. But it, it's, you know, there's, there's got to be creep in that, in that, in that experience that, that more and more things are like, I mean, if you ever look at your bill after you've had a, an exam uh, or a treatment or a, or a, you know, some kind of, uh, experience in the hospital, the things they or, or at the dental office, the things that they claim to have done to you, you know, the categories, they've checked all the boxes and filled in all the blanks. But if you were paying for it out of your own pocket or if the insurance company had somebody alongside you at each of these experiences, it, it couldn't happen that way. Uh, yes. Well, oh, boy, we're getting into some really big issues in the whole healthcare system uh, here. Uh, a couple of comments I'd make on your experience there, which is very common. Uh, number one, um, <clears throat> yes, uh, often these tests are ordered in, uh, we might say, bad faith by the doctors, um, perhaps because they know that an office visit itself uh, is uh, going to be billed pretty low, so they want a little extra money on the side, and they may have a financial interest in the company doing the test and so forth. Um, there's another side to the coin, though, which is that when you ask doctors about this, they tell you that uh, some of this excess testing is consumer-driven, that uh, if uh, people go to their doctor and they want these tests, example is the so-called PSA test for yep. um, uh, prostate cancer, which has uh, uh, been found to be practically worthless as a diagnostic tool. But when men go in to their doctors uh, for a check, they ask for this. They say, well, you know, maybe it's not very good, but shouldn't you do it? I'm worried about this. So, you know, you got that. Yeah, we've talked um, about that before, the evidence yeah. on it. And so it's, a, you know, but it is a problem. Uh, one widely recommended solution for this is uh, – to move away from fee-for-service medicine toward uh, bundled payments, so-called, or sometimes called value-based uh, care, and uh, where you pay for a whole package. Uh, you know, my if you're getting into personal anecdotes, a couple of years ago, I had shoulder surgery, and I went to um, an excellent hospital in Seattle called um, Swedish Hospital, and... <clears throat> I asked them up front, I said, how much is this going to cost me? And I expected them not to be able to say, because that's often the case, uh, because they're going to bill you for every saline bag and so forth. Uh, somewhat to my surprise, Swedish Hospital, the receptionist who I asked this, I've said, oh, uh, that'll cost you. And then she gave me a, a number in the low, uh, it was a high number, the low uh seven figures, but um, that was it. And that was the only thing that my insurance company was ever billed for was that single lump sum payment. 
Well, there is a new so phenomenon. More, more of that would help control the type of things you're, you, you've encouraged, these unnecessary tests and overpriced saline bags and things like that. Yeah, there is. And, but and some of them are – I don't mean to suggest that it's, that it's uh, fraud, literal fraud, like a lot for the saline bag. But a lot of times it's just an extra test. It's also the legal environment uh, that encourages doctors to, to be more, quote, thorough. Um, you know, my mom went to get some checkup after a heart procedure, and they gave her an EKG. And I said, Mom, why'd they do that? Well, they always do when I go in. <laughs> they just had one three days before. You know, when you had the surgery or something, whatever it was, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's just routine. You know, and routine means, yeah, there it goes. Just check that box, get that billing. Yeah, and I'm thinking, right. that's not in your interest, and it is in theirs. So <laughs> to say no. Let me ask you a question. How did you even dream of the possibility of a thorough discussion of these issues in an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, for our listeners who've heard dozens of hours on this before, this just enhances right. what they've already no. what they've already talked uh, about. No, yeah, it's, it's, uh, no, one, it's a it's a the system. It's a very complicated system and has so many different problems that uh, a discussion of one inevitably leads to a discussion of another. For sure, and we had uh, an episode which I recommend to listeners who may have missed it with Christy Ford Chapin on the evolution of of the healthcare system in the United States and. Some of the things that were done before the large role of government, which, um, you know, I, it always drives me nuts when people uh, say, well, we can't have a market-based healthcare system. Look how bad our system is, as if we have a market-based health, health system. We don't. There are market forces in it, but it's he- heavily dominated by government in all kinds of subtle and not-so-subtle ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, I've – I don't know how long you want to stick strictly to the employer. Um, you can talk about whatever you want, Ed. Go for <laughs> the it. The employer-based healthcare system, but this broader question of what is to what extent is it possible to have a market-based healthcare system is one that I've thought about, and it's one we've worried about, a lot about at the um, Niskanen Center. And uh, our position I've sort of come down to is that you should have a market-based healthcare system to the greatest extent possible, um, but it's clear that a 100% market-based healthcare system is not possible, and that's uh, true for two reasons, uh, and both of them have to do uh, in one way or another with the insurability of healthcare. Um, the first problem is that uh, healthcare spending is very, very asymmetrically distributed. And it goes by basically a, uh, uh, some people call it the 80-20 rule, that 20% of people account for 80% of healthcare spending. And in fact, uh, top 1% account for about 10% of healthcare spending. Um, So the result of that is, that there are a lot of people for whom it is true that their health care spending needs exceed their income, uh, in fact, exceed their entire lifetime income in a certain number of cases. Uh, now, of course, 
uh, it's also true that if your house burns down, um, the cost of rebuilding your house exceeds your income, and we solve that through insurance. But healthcare needs um, are increasingly uninsurable because in order to be insurable, a risk has to be uh, fortuitous. It has to be due to random chance, but an increasing number of healthcare risks um, are predictable on the basis of uh, pre-existing conditions or uh, things that are determined, testing that's determined before you're born. So we have this combination of catastrophic risks, which are risks that exceed your ability to pay, um, sometimes even on a lifetime basis, not just out of current income. And we have uninsurability uh, and between those two, they mean that uh, if we try to have a purely market-based healthcare system, uh, some people are not going to have access to treatment for um, serious healthcare needs. So we have to find some solution to that, which we've been working on. Well, let me disagree a little bit, uh, or at least point out something I think people often forget. I know you don't forget it, but but people often do, which is that uh, if the price of something exceeds everybody's lifetime income, that thing won't exist. Uh, and it's it, it will only exist if we decide to subsidize it. And we might decide to because it's so wonderful and so glorious. Um, you know, I, people, we had um, fed episodes on pharmaceutical pricing, many pharmaceutical treatments now for cancer um, and other drug and other illnesses are, are in the seven figures per year, mm-hmm. uh, say $100,000 a year or more. And of course, who could afford that without insurance? Very few, And which is why it wouldn't be $100,000 if, if somebody else weren't paying for it. We have this crazy system right now where pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical companies, which I'm big fans of, by the way, for their innovation, and uh, it, it, they do wonderful things, but the current system incentivizes them to reach into the pockets of taxpayers to fund uh all kinds of good things, which is which we get benefits from, but their worth is unclear. Uh, meaning, if a drug costs a million dollars, uh, because even if no one can pay for it, that's not the market price. There's sort of a market in that the government doesn't intervene in how it's priced unless it gets really outrageous. But we have this crazy world right now where they can raise the price 10, 20 percent on existing drugs. And if they have a case to be made for its efficacy, or even if not, even just a good drug that's working, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be getting better. If it, they'll, they can pass that price on through Medicare, Medicaid, and through insurance companies are going to also then pass on those premiums. Now, I want to make it clear they're a very small part of the total burden, and they save money too. So it's not the biggest problem that our healthcare system has in terms of cost versus value, but it is an example of why the current system is nuts. Same thing goes true with the hospital system that you mentioned earlier, the hospital system, which is uncompetitive, partly because we've given existing hospitals the ludicrous ability in many states to restrain competitors from entering their market, which is just – it drives me crazy. Literally, they have to – they can sign off and veto the arrival of a new hospital. So strangely enough, they get more and more expensive. Much of that is not paid for by you or I, the patient. You or me, the patient, it's paid for by – uh, the taxpayer or the premiums on imposed over a large sea of, of employees. That's a crazy system. 
Um, yeah, it is a crazy system. I'm not quite um, <clears throat> sure where you're going with this, though, because the arguments you make and the facts you point to um, are often used by advocates of single-payer health care uh, because they point out that um, countries, uh, other countries, uh, like have systems for dealing with these, let's say, getting to some of the, uh, let's say we just limit ourselves not to countries with national health care systems like the UK, but to countries that have private health care systems with government payers like uh, Netherlands or Switzerland or Germany, um, where you have private insurance companies and private providers, uh, but government is paying a larger share of health care costs directly instead of indirectly through employer mandates and stuff. So if you go to those countries, you find out that uh, they're faced with these same problems. And what they have is they have professional health, uh, professional associations that analyze treatments to see whether they're are worthwhile. They'll look at a new cancer drug and they'll evaluate it in terms of what uh, the, what, what people that study these things call qualities, uh, quality-adjusted life years, and they'll say, okay, here's this new drug. Uh, how much is it worth paying for? How many quality-adjusted life years does it offer compared to the old drug? And they'll put a cutoff in there and they just won't pay for it or they won't pay more than a certain amount. Uh, <clears throat> We don't have those restraints in the United States. You would think as, uh, you know, uh, in the abstract that insurance companies ought to insist on not paying for drugs that don't give you the benefits, but that's not true. In our government sector, uh, uh, notoriously in uh, Medicare, uh, we don't have any effective controls over this. So it's uh, it's it's. It's something that somebody has to do. Somebody has to be able to look at this. And you can't expect the consumer to make this choice because obviously when you're faced with cancer, you're going to grasp at any straw no matter how expensive it is. Um, well, I actually somebody, don't agree with so, that. Somebody has, to, somebody has to say no. I, I don't think you'd grasp at any straw. You wouldn't impoverish your children. Uh, one of the great things about our current system is you don't have to have that. You don't have to face that ethical stop right, dilemma. Stop right there. That's that's false. Why? Uh, and your children, uh, <laughs> people do this. You say you won't impoverish your spouse, you won't impoverish your children, you'll just die. Uh, that is true of some people, but it's not true of all people. People burn up. People burn up their entire inheritances and leaves their sure. wives in penury because they want to get some last desperate hope treatment. Uh, it's a. It's a. It's a tough area to expect people to, to, to be rational decision makers. Let me just go back. That, if I could, to go off at a right angle here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's another topic uh, we've talked about, which complicates the situation for providing um, market-based healthcare, and that is this thing you say. Well, if people are spending their own money. Uh, they spend it more wisely. But there's not very much empirical evidence that supports that. There certainly is empirical evidence uh, that's been very widely studied. There's quite a large literature on this, studying how people respond to high deductible health care. And there, uh, it's definitely true that when people have high deductibles, they spend less on health care. 
what is not at all clear is whether they spend more wisely. And most studies conclude that people are um, about equally likely to cut back on their consumption of uh, unnecessary frivolous care and to cut back on um, cost-effective uh, preventive care or on treatments that really work because, uh, you know, that makes them, uh, they, they do things that are unwise in their healthcare spending. Um, so consumers don't seem to choose as wisely in the healthcare world as they do in the supermarket. It's just a complicating factor because that means that some of the apparently obvious solutions like high deductibles and um, uh, you know, um, health savings accounts and so forth are not perfect. I, I agree with all that, and, and I, I didn't mean to imply that everybody would, would spare their children or their spouse. Um, certainly the, the case that many people There's don't. A, it's their children and their spouse – Often, who are urging the money? I know, <laughs> urging them to try these things. Don't give up, Pa. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true too. And we've, we've fight talked. it, fight <laughs> it to the last. You know. Yeah. Well, one reason I think people don't react so rationally is obviously the emotional burden of death and mortality, and uh, that does make it hard to make decisions. Although, um, you know, the knowledge that a man's going to be hung in a fortnight concentrates the mind wonderfully. At least that's what Samuel Johnson thought. But um, of course, the other thing is we're not in practice. We don't have a lot of practice at making these kind of decisions. We've evolved into a, a culture of trusting doctors as shamans and and uh, wizards and always looking out for us. Uh, there's a certain paternalism or nanny statism, maternalism to, to that relationship that I think is extremely unhealthy for adults. But it's certainly true that we str we struggle to make wise decisions. I wonder if that would be as true if we lived in a world where we had to make them more often. But um, that's just a unanswerable question. Um, let, let's turn to an idea that you've proposed in this article we've been talking about, which is uh, universal ca catastrophic coverage. Actually, before we do that, one thing we haven't talked about we need to, which is if I'm not going to get employer-sponsored health insurance, what are my options uh, how hard is it to buy insurance as a self-employed person? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I do. <laughs> Good. <laughs> because I've spent most of my career in self-employment. And um, before uh, I reached Medicare age or before the ACA came along, I depended entirely on um, individual health care insurance. Uh, I have very fortunate in the fact that my wife and I have both been very healthy. Even so, uh, toward the end of that period, the early 2000s, when I was relying on that system, it became the prices for the policies I was paying, and these were with essentially perfect health records, were rising rapidly. Um, people who study those things say if we went back to pre-ACA, that the individual, if we if we simply abolish the ACA, as some people uh, uh, recommend, the market for individual health insurance would perhaps no longer exist. That it would simply be recognized as an essentially uninsurable risk for individuals. 
uh, still insurable to some degree for risk uh, for, uh, for for group policies. So is the problem simply that you can't be pooled together with other people for the insurance company to spread the risk across healthy and unhealthy people? Yes, basically. It's the increasing predictability of healthcare risks so that only health healthy insurance companies are only willing to insure healthy people. So let's move to the universal uh, catastrophic coverage right. idea. How would that work and why do you think it's a good idea? Our philosophy, uh, the, my philosophy, and which is shared by many people at the Scannon Center, is that we uh, promote a paradoxical seeming idea, an oxymoronic idea even, called the free market welfare state, which is that uh, we think that government does have an obligation or a useful purpose to serve, maybe I won't even say an obligation, in providing a robust social safety net, but that that ought to be made, um, to uh, that ought not to displace the market uh, to any greater degree than necessary, uh, which means that we're always looking for compromise solutions which don't completely eliminate either the market or the government from solutions of difficult problems. And in the healthcare area, one way of doing that uh, is to try to use a market-based healthcare system to solve the problems that it can solve. And one way to define the problems that it can solve is to uh, solve problems that are non-catastrophic, that people should pay for their own health care uh, to the extent that um, they are able to, uh, financially able to, that they should, the government should protect them only from financially ruinous health care uh, spending. And when I say they should, that's for two reasons. It's both in a philosophical sense that the government is there uh, only to do things which can't be done in any other way. And secondly, because uh, if we do them through the market, it's not only philosophically better as a practical sense, it's more efficient and works better. So the way that we try to separate these things out is to say – uh, and one way to separate these things out is through the principle of universal catastrophic coverage, which basis of which is that everybody has a backstop healthcare policy that covers uh, that operates with an income-based deductible, so that uh, you never have to pay more than a certain percentage of your income. Uh, Low-income people might face uh, – people below the poverty line might face no deductible at all, as is the case under uh, Medicaid. <clears throat> high-income people would not only face uh, high deductibles, but they might face very high deductibles. If you make a million dollars, your deductible under your government-sponsored universal health care policy might be $100,000 a year so that it would exclude all but a very, very few people. Uh, this uh, system, if we used a system that was based on 10 or 15 percent out-of-pocket maximum as the definition of catastrophic, uh, people in the uh, middle class would end up probably paying a comparable share of their income to what they pay now under employer-financed insurance or ACA policies. And the idea would be that this would be 
given to you by the by government covered by taxes for the the part that wasn't covered by the deductible yeah right now if you look at where healthcare money comes from um the government sponsors uh the government pays for about half of the national healthcare bill almost exactly half employers pay another 20% of that which to my way of thinking is uh largely also should be counted as part of the yeah. um as as part of the government share since um uh, the employer mandate is essentially a tax in kind on employers and then indirectly a tax in kind on workers. <clears throat> so you take this uh, 50, 20, 30 spread. So we're looking at the 30% uh, share that households now get. So if we, a, a starting point for discussion of this problem would be say, let's maintain this uh, balance between the government share and the private share maintain the the household share as a constant. Uh, the 30% actually also happens to be just about the average for OECD countries. If we maintain that as constant, what can we buy for that? What we can buy for that without raising anybody's tax bill uh, is we can buy a policy that would cover uh, catastrophic needs of the whole population. Um, in an, under some configuration of uh, universal catastrophic coverage. So that's, that would be essentially, we might call a budget neutral or revenue neutral version. Then by tweaking features of the universal catastrophic principle, that is by raising the out-of-pocket maximum, by raising the low income cutoff below which people uh, get first dollar coverage, uh, by adding uh, maybe an income-based premium in addition to the out-of-pocket costs, by manipulating all of these things, we could um, adjust upward or downward any of the three components, the government, the employer, or the uh, household share of spending. Well, you know, that strikes me as a huge improvement uh, relative to the current system. Uh, it would be a radical transformation, right? The, if we went to a market-based, you know, the, the argument you're making implicitly is, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that, you know, you don't buy insurance for oil changes. You don't buy insurance for uh, physicals and things that are expected. Uh, what you buy insurance for is unexpected risk, unexpected events that you can't anticipate or reduce the chances of. And for that, people would like to have they don't want to be bankrupted by those things. They, they, you don't sleep well at night. So you need some kind of system. And I don't have any problem with encouraging a market in that kind of universal coverage and subsidizing, again, if this would be so much better than what we do now, subsidizing um, poorer people relative to rich people uh, to, to pay for that privately provided insurance coverage for, for catastrophic risks. The advantage of that over the current system is that a private entity, assuming there was competition, if there's no competition, it doesn't help. But if there's competition, you at least have someone with an incentive to reduce innovation that is not productive and encourage innovation that is productive. And I think the biggest, you know, we, you talked earlier about that my argument was pushing toward a single payer. That that's true. High, really expensive healthcare 
one of the arguments that you can conclude from that is that you should have a government that negotiates price, that takes into account uh, efficacy and so on. I don't think that works very well. Uh, I, I do want to encourage listeners to listen to the Vincent Rajkumar episode where he talks about qualities and other ways of getting a fair price. I just think that's a, a Kafkaesque way to get there from here. I think it'd be much better to have a, a more market-based system. And if I understand what you're saying correctly, uh, this could get help us get there. Uh, yes, it could. And um, <clears throat> what it gets us is a system in which um, the you have part of the system running on a market basis and part running on not a market basis. But in a sense, to the extent that you believe that these um, the people that are spending their own money on health care spend more wisely – uh, not everybody spends more widely, and not everybody would be spending their own money in the system. But it's sort of like what happens, I use the analogy, what happens in the supermarket. Um, in the supermarket, not everybody spends their money wisely. A lot of people pull stuff off the shelf without looking at the price stickers or without reading the nutritional labels. But some people do. And the people that run the store know that a certain significant uh, part of their clientele uh, do watch the prices, do clip the coupons and so forth. And even a minority of people putting market pressure on the providers uh, has some beneficial effect on the efficiency of the system and uh, helps curb some of the more obvious abuses. Yeah, and of course, when you have the high, crazy hybrid patchwork system we have, and we haven't talked about the state level restrictions on healthcare insurance, which some people argue have add to the cost because it's hard to have a national healthcare insurance company. Each state has their own rules and regulations. Um, you know, when you have this, this crazy patchwork system, it's incredibly inefficient to the point where there are providers out there now who run a cash-only business for surgery. You know, yes. they post prices just like the real world, just like the supermarket. Yep. They say, you want a yep. knee? Here's the cost. You want a gallbladder taken out? Here's the cost. Yep. And they're, my impression is they're quite inexpensive. They're not cheap, but they're quite inexpensive relative to the to the other system, either because of competition or complexity or paperwork. I'm not, I don't know if anyone studied this, but do you have any any thoughts on that? Uh, yes. Yeah, I know a little bit about these cash-based services, and they are not always even for procedures as extensive as a knee replacement, but um, even more minor uh, things like doctor's visits or, um, uh, you know, getting your flu shot or whatever. Um, yeah, uh, I think that things like cash-based clinics would flourish uh, in a system uh, of universal catastrophic care. The other thing is um, that... Uh, without going all the way to a single-payer system, which I'm not enthusiastic of, that if you mean by that uh, single system that pays everybody's health care for everything, like the uh, Sanders Medicare for All system, but a single-payer in the sense of administratively simplification of the system would be a big benefit because um, the United States has unusually high administrative costs uh, for health care, which somehow, because we have six or seven different health care systems, and we have Medicaid, Medicare, VA, uh, ACA, employer-sponsored, and so forth, 
another thing you mentioned that I think that would be improved under universal catastrophic care would be the issue of portability, which is a big problem. And portability shows up in employer-sponsored compensation, compensation uh, uh, employer-sponsored insurance in the phenomenon of job lock. But it's also true, you mentioned the, the diversity of systems among states. Uh, it also it puts uh, restraints on interstate mobility. Uh, used to be that people that defended the U.S. economy relative to, say, the European uh, economy would say, well, one of the great things about the American uh economy is that we have a single market for everything throughout the whole country so they have this marvelous mobility of resources within this enormous economy of 300 million people and three trillion dollars we're losing that mobility um, because uh, healthcare is locking people into a single state these programs you can't transfer them to one state to another and the data are there if you look at data on interstate mobility of the labor market it's plunging all over the place yeah we've talked about in this program before about some of it's the fact that uh, rents in urban environments have risen dramatically it's very hard and, to move uh, occupational licensing yeah, is there's a lot fact. of barriers that are below sort yeah. of below the radar that uh, yeah. Are really interesting and and sad to me that we've um, we've lost. I agree with you that we've lost a lot of the dynamism. At least the data says we have. Maybe people just don't like to move as much as they used to. I find that very hard to believe. Uh, I think something else has changed, and these are some but, of the things that. Well, listen, it. I I have a son-in-law who's a a, a college professor uh, in Michigan, and um, he has. Uh, looked for jobs, responded to job offers in other states that look attractive to him. And uh, in every case, he's eventually had to give up on that idea of moving to a better job uh, because of health insurance problems, because they have a special needs child who is getting some health assistance from the state of Michigan, and that's non-portable, no other state. Uh, you know they can't they can't move to another state because they would at best have a long waiting period to get coverage uh, for this child's condition. Yeah, that's that's not ideal. Um, and as we're suggesting, there's a lot of factors interacting here. It's hard to know the magnitudes of any of them, but they're all uh, reducing the flow of people. And uh, goods flow pretty freely across state borders, but people don't so much anymore, and that's probably not a good thing. Let's close with um, the political reality that your ideal system, my ideal system, which would um, include a large role for uh, private philanthropic efforts, which I consider part of the market, but some people don't. Some people mean market to mean profit-based. I think that's not the right way to think about it. I think we should think about voluntary systems versus top-down coercive ones. And um, but it, the the political realities are so complicated. You know, you point out at the beginning of your article that most people are happy with their employer-provided health care, and I'm thinking, well, sure they are. Somebody else's about a third of it's paid for by somebody else. So who wouldn't yeah, like that? It, well, so, actually, a large part of the reason people are happy with it is because they're healthy. Uh, <laughs> so they haven't. So they haven't used it. But. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. That's yeah. That's my ideal yeah. insurance. Right. The one I haven't used. Yeah. It's a, there's a paradox. Um, but yeah, if you're not going to use it, that someone else is paying for it, it's even better. Um, what What do you see as uh, realistic or optimistic signs on the horizon that that um, that some change might happen? I, I see the system as so complicated that I I often despair of of any uh, of marginal improvement. And marginal improvement's complicated because it's not obvious that um, it's always a step in the right direction, given how, given that complexity. I like to think that technology is going to help do a bit of an end around and maybe Amazon, that Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway uh, innovation will leverage technology in a way that's innovative. And that's something they do know a little bit about, at least. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the political situation, you can look at it as either – you know, half full or half empty. There are some discouraging things about it. The biggest discouragement <clears throat> is uh, something I call Reinhardt's Law, which is named after the late Uwe Reinhardt, one of the leading health economists in the country. And he used to say over and over again in different words that the problem is that every dollar of healthcare waste <clears throat> is a dollar of income for some healthcare provider. And uh, the healthcare providers, as a result, have such an army of lobbyists that it's hard to get anything done. So that is discouraging. However, there's some uh, I've gotten some encouragement in the universal pr- trying to promote universal catastrophic care. One of the things I find encouraging is the fact that this idea has been equally well received uh, on uh, the left and the right. Uh, I've published descriptions of this system in, um, you know, the 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 American Conservative, the Washington Examiner, uh, conservative outlets like this. I've published descriptions of it in uh, New York Times and um, uh, Fox and other more liberal outlets, and it gets good feedback. Uh, in both cases. <clears throat> so I think it's an idea that has some, at least on the philosophical or conceptual level, has some actual um, uh, cross-the-aisle appeal. Um, the Scan Center uh, has good contacts on Capitol Hill, and they get, uh, at least at the staffer level, uh, some good feedback on this concept as well. <clears throat> Secondly, um, <clears throat> Universal catastrophic care is not um, any single plan in the detailed sense that, for example, the Sanders Medicare for All plan is. It's a set. Uh, it's an approach to solving the problems. A set of parameters, but uh, depending on your politics and your philosophy and your empirical beliefs about how people respond to incentives, you can vary these parameters uh, widely to achieve some different objective, whether it's budget neutrality or whether it's uh, uh, how you spread the burden between uh, healthy and sick people or uh, what's the maximum percentage of people you can uh, expose to a personal incentive. You can vary the formula uh, to fit your needs there. So I think it's, uh, although there are barriers to doing anything in politics, that 
the barriers may be lower for this than some more radical solutions. My guest today has been Ed Dolan. Ed, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much for having me on the program. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.